podcast. Hope you're following along on our social media as well at Seven Innings Podcast. That's where you can send your questions into the mailbag. That's where you can also get the lineup card every week. I'm Beth Mullins along with Michelle Smith, Amanda Scarborough, Jen Schroeder, and Madison Shipman. And here's what we got in store for you. I might talk a little KB size, some Keely Rochard. How about Addison Barnard at Wichita State? We're also going to hear from the umpires this week. Plenty to cover on the road to the Women's College World Series. Prime time Sunday night, May 15th will be Selection Sunday, followed by our one-hour special seven innings podcast to get you ready. Should be a wild postseason, guys. And Jen Schroeder, I don't know that we should be surprised anymore at what's happening with Stanford and how perplexing it is for opponents to go into Palo Alto and try and win. Yeah, Beth, for me, the MVP of the Pac-12 conference just might be the entire Stanford softball team. Let's think about this. UCLA and Arizona State are 23-0 when not playing in Palo Alto. Arizona State went to Stanford this past weekend on a nation-leading 20-game win streak. They were stunned by the Cardinal. Alana Vodder got it done in the circle. She had two wins, only gave up three hits on Friday night. Amanda, as a pitcher, I know you're a fan of her in the circle. What do you think they got going on over there in Palo Alto? Well, I think that they have a lot of momentum because they keep beating the teams that are at the top of the Pac-12 standings. And then next, they're going to be able to play Washington, who's in third place. But going back to that series with UCLA and Oregon State, I wanted to hit on this a little bit because for Oregon State, you guys, they've lost six in a row. And all six games, they've lost by just one run. So they fought hard with UCLA. It was heartbreaking with how tough both their series were and back-to-back series with Washington and then UCLA. But UCLA held strong. So going back to Washington just a little bit, they are in third place. And when you look at what Bailey Klingler has done for them this year, wow. I poppy numbers, 19 home runs, 56 RBIs, and they will play Stanford next, and then they also have ASU and Utah down the road. But my question for us to start thinking about is looking to Gabby playing in the circle for Washington. Last weekend against Oregon, they threw her in all three games. Heather Tarr at the beginning of the season was committed to rest her, to not throw her all three games, but they did against Oregon. So how is Washington going to handle her with them still in the Pac-12 championship hunt? Are they going to continue to throw her, or are they going to let her rest a little bit because – We saw her throw all three games against Oregon, and they were able to swing the bat really well. So I do just add real quick, Beth and Amanda, I I do think it's interesting with Gabby because she's not as much a power pitcher up near 70 miles an hour. She has a lot of spin. I think she is one of those pitchers that she can throw three days in a row, three games in a row, and still have that really good movement. I think that's the thing that's most important with power pitchers. It is a little more difficult because when that velocity drops off, that's when they get into trouble. But someone like Gabby Plain, when she really spins the ball, I think she's a lot more successful and can actually throw those three games in a row and be successful. But I'd like to remind everyone that the Pac-12 championship is going to come down to ASU-UCLA. They have yet to play. They do not face off for a couple of more weeks. And so we will not know who's going to win the Pac-12 until we get down to that series. And personally, I can't wait for it. Yeah, they find themselves now together uh, at the top. So it's UCLA has Utah at Arizona State and then Cal to finish. Arizona State has Cal UCLA, and then on the road at Washington, which could be very interesting for the Huskies, 
that we've talked about this UW team, guys, they are now firmly on that host bubble for a potential top 16 seed. And of course, we don't have to remind softball fans about the fact that they were the 16 seed last year and had to go to play Oklahoma in the uh, Oklahoma in the uh, Supers. And of course, that did not uh, go well for the Huskies. So it's going to be a great finish in the Pac-12 as uh, it continues to be perplexing in Palo Alto. We move on now to number two in our lineup card, which is the angst in the ACC. It was just a week ago, Maddie, that we were talking about possibly five schools hosting, maybe even four in the top eight. But stumbles for Duke and Clemson this week have clouded just how deep they might go. And still Florida State and Virginia Tech very solid in that top eight. Yeah, when I'm looking at a team like Virginia Tech, I don't think any of us are surprised that they're still up there at the top with such good pitching, such good hitting. They're really a team that's putting it all together. But you mentioned one team, Duke. That's the one that I'm really looking for. They've got seven losses on the season. And when I look at their losses, I think it's really easy to look at those scores and go, hey, they need to get better pitching. They need to get better consistent pitching in the circle. But really what it comes down to, I think, is the amount of errors that their defense is making in those games. I really think it's not just an ACC-wide thing but really a softball-wide thing. I think we need to raise the standard for the defense that we're playing behind these pitchers. When you start to make those errors, it puts more pressure on the pitchers to have to pitch strikes, to have to attack the strike zone. So I think it's kind of a combination of two things for Duke. That's why they've had some of those uncharacteristic losses. But I know in the ACC, that's not one of the only surprise teams that we're seeing. Michelle, what's the other team that you've got your eye on? Well, I, I just think the ACC in general is a big surprise. I go back to what Amanda said earlier, way earlier this year, was that she thought that there were going to be three teams that make it to the Women's College World Series. They do look like they're potentially on track. Back to your point about Duke, I do think that loss to Syracuse, they gave up one run in the whole series, and it was the one game that they scored no runs. So they lost that game one to nothing, and they did have two other games that they did beat Syracuse, five to nothing, six to nothing. So I do like the um, the way the ACC is really rounding out. I think Clemson obviously had a really hard point against uh, Florida State. That was a really tough series, but Florida State's playing great. So really, uh, when you look at Clemson, I think this is a very strong team and Georgia Tech as well as a team that you cannot sleep on. Amanda, who else are you looking at? I know that you do not want us to sleep on Georgia Tech, Michelle. Like, you will say it and say it. I can't wait to see how they compete in regionals, honestly, and where they end up because they are a team that I think can make a little bit of noise, absolutely. The one team that I wanted to touch on is Florida State. Why does it seem like Florida State is able to get up for the big game? It's like they know that they're on national TV. When they're on ESPN2, ACC Network, like they're able to play in close games. They're able to rally late. They show some fight, some grit. That is just a team that absolutely knows how to win, Beth. And I know that you guys had a front seat to be able to watch this series with FSU and Clemson. Yeah, two terrific nail biters. Uh, a lot more home run balls than we thought. More on that in a moment. But uh, two one-run wins for Florida State, including the walk-off, and then they took care of business in that third game. So that's one of the reasons why Florida State, one of the strongest resumes right now in the country, along with Virginia Tech, those two teams have the most top 25 RPI wins. So they're looking very strong. Clemson right now probably looking at a top 16 seed. And I think the other thing to keep an eye on with the ACC is how many teams. Last year, five into the NCAA tournament. This year, we could be talking seven, eight, nine teams getting into the postseason from the ACC. 
Well, speaking of some of that uh, home run power we just referenced, how about a little home run revival this week? That's still to come on the program. We're also going to hear from the umpires, and you know one of our favorite things all week long. going to shag a stat or two all to come on the 7 Innings Podcast. That's going to be a good one on Thursday night primetime on ESPN2 for our Thursday night throwdown series. It continues with the Pokes and the Seminoles. Keep your eyes on uh, the likes of Julia Cottrell and Kaylee Harding. A couple of players right now that are moving and shaking as we uh, jump back into our lineup card. Number three following uh, and then leading into our home run revival, of course, in the cleanup spot. Amanda Scarborough is going to get us going on some of the movers and shakers and the milestones and ovations that we celebrated this week. Yeah, so much to cover, but I think first and foremost, I'm actually going to change my ringtone from that promo for Thursday night to your ringtone, Beth, specifically. <laughs> I just was really grooving <laughs> to that music. Um, a couple of players I wanted to point out. I mean, we got to talk a little bit about Arkansas and Shanice Dels and the way that she's pitched for them so far this year. Going to the season, we were really talking about Mary Half. I mean, and rightfully so. She was co-SEC Pitcher of the Year last year, but the way that Shanice Dells has stepped up for them has been really something special. Against Florida, she started game one and game three came in relief in game two and was just absolutely nails and I feel like she's one of the few pitchers in the SEC who their ERA actually goes down in conference play overall in the year it's 2.10 but in SEC play 1.30 ERA something that's really special about her too she speaking of movers she moved on over from Tulsa where she beat Arkansas in the Stillwater Regional so they were on to her early and she's really made an impact for their team uh, just wanted to quickly hit on Taylor Pleasance who we know is one of the best players in the country but she didn't start out that way in the first 20 games she hit about 186 but since then she's hit over 400 so coming on strong for LSU and then another Taylor that I wanted to mention for Michigan who we haven't been talking a ton about because they started out so slow and they just have not been playing how we thought that Michigan would play this season but Taylor bump they played Ohio State this past weekend they were almost about to lose the series against Ohio State, which they hadn't done since 1990. But Taylor Bump in game two came up and had a walk-off triple to be able to give them that win on Saturday night. They would go on to win the series on Sunday after a comeback when they were down by four runs. So Taylor Bump making some big moves for Michigan, and I feel like she and the fact that Storocco is throwing well for them is making them a mover and shaker on their own. Jen, what do you got? And Amanda, you mentioned players who are movers and shakers, but I want to talk about teams, and I have to start with Arkansas. I feel like people were still doubting Arkansas, even though they were the only SEC team to have won every single series. They still went into Gainesville. They had not beaten Florida since 2007, and they did it Friday night in run-rule fashion. You mentioned Shanice Dells. She was incredible. This entire Arkansas offense, KB Sides, Hannah Gamble, Danielle Gibson, you name it, they're getting it done. They are so impressive. And I think, knock on wood, a sweep of the Florida Gators has solidified the Razorbacks a top eight seed. Now I've got to talk about the Missouri Tigers as well because boy, oh boy, did they hit the ball this past weekend. They started out season hot. To me, they were a team that I thought for sure would be a top 16 team heading into postseason. And then they entered SEC play and they had only won one series. They were six and nine. And honestly, 
They were really struggling. That is until this past weekend. They went into Lexington, Kentucky. Into Lexington, Kentucky. They swept. And guys, Kim Wirt, incredible. She three bowls of Lucky Charms, hit four home runs, two grand slams, completely cleared the scoreboard. She was incredible. And for me, the Missouri Tigers are absolutely a team that's on the rise. All right, I'm writing that down. Trope. Lucky Charms, that's the leader in the clubhouse for this week's episode name. Let's check out some of the movers and shakers when it comes to RPI. And uh, you referenced, our, uh, referenced Arkansas. They are moving on up in the RPI. And uh, some other teams as we uh, check out that list uh, with uh, Oklahoma, of course, right there. Virginia Tech leaping over Alabama after the tide dropped a couple to Texas A&M. And also Arkansas and Oklahoma State with the big moves in, in the top 10. And remember, those top eight teams uh, with RPI, with the eye test, with head-to-head -head matchups, they would be hosting the Super Regionals. And there is your 11 through 20. Notre Dame fell out uh, or was out and now moved up to 19, I should say. And uh, Washington, that big leap now into the top 16. Madison, I know you had something to add on as well. Yeah, I got an opportunity to be down in Gainesville watching Arkansas, and I just wanted to tell you guys that they are the real deal. They're a team that actually plays with a little bit of a chip on their shoulder because of some of the doubters that they had last year. Even though they were co-SEC champions, they still felt like people were doubting with their strength of schedule last year. But this team is the real deal. One through nine, they've got people that can leave the yard and my favorite story all year so far has to be Shanice Dells, that dirty drop ball. She learned that in one day. About three weeks into the season, Coach Courtney Dyfel decided that she needed something hard and down to add to her pitching repertoire, and she did it all one day, and it's been a devastating pitch all year long. Yeah, we've also got some milestones and ovations to celebrate. Gabby Plain, now a member of the 100-win, 1,000-strikeout club. And uh, Janae Jefferson is now the all-time hits leader at, uh, in Big 12 play. And there you get a look at Gabby Plain doing her thing. How about Florida State off to the best start in school history? How about we celebrate the Arkansas NIL deal for the entire team? Great job. Local support for Arkansas. They are... And here are the ovations we were talking about. There's Sydney Sherrill getting a good one in Tallahassee. Uh, also going viral was the Keeley Rochard ovation in front of the Virginia Tech fans on their senior days. And this is all good stuff that we saw around college softball. Hugs, what a career she's had. They've talked so much about wanting to host in the NCAA tournament. They are inching ever closer to that, as well as trying to lock down the regular season championship in the Atlantic Coast Conference. They are in the driver's seat, a game up on the Duke Blue Devils. All right, let's move down our lineup card now into that cleanup spot. And uh, Michelle Smith, we saw a little bit of this home run revival this weekend. Excited to see what Mackenzie Clark was able to do. Three jacks in three straight at-bats. Yeah, you know, Beth, I, I feel like the home run ball is back, and I feel like, you know, it's just painful. It's like, let's just throw the pitcher at it to talk about it. Well, okay, right. I was a, a pitcher that rakes, so I like to hit the home <laughs> run ball myself. But you know how it is. You know, yeah. when the home run ball comes back, mm -hmm. everyone's like, chicks dig the long ball. And, of course, we do. So it's fun to see it go out. But you're right. Mackenzie Clark was outstanding. Um, three home runs, a solo shot. 
a two-run shot, and then her 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 third home run of the game was off of a changeup, was outstanding. But you got to go to Wichita State. I think that when you really look at the way the ball leaves the park, Wichita State's one of the best in the business, obviously, along with Oklahoma, who has, leads the country at 114. But Wichita State just knows how to hit the ball, and I love the way that Addison Barnett has been able to do it as well. She just can hit the ball with so much power. She actually is leading the country right now with 26 home runs. She just has so much power the way she gets that front foot down and is on time. That's a changeup that she is just completely lifting out of the yard. She's very silent and quick to contact, and that's why she can't be fooled whether or not it's a changeup, a rise ball, a drop ball. Just so much power. She's hitting over 400 six times this year. Six times she's hit two home runs in a year. And if you think it's all over the fence, no, she can also leg it out as well. Look at those wheels go. You know, not many people can say that I can go yard over the fence. And you know what? If it bounces off the fence, I can still circle them all. So I love the long ball this year. Well, Michelle, I can very confidently say that I never had an in-the-park home run, and that's because I do not have the speed to be able to make it all the way around the bases when the ball's bouncing around inside the park. But Addison Barner, definitely one of the unicorns, I would say, this season. And I thought it was interesting looking at an interview for her from last year. She said the hardest part of adjusting from travel ball to college game was the pace of play. And I think she's setting the pace for the rest of the college game, trying to keep up with her home run numbers this year. But somebody else that I've got my eye on, too, is Kim Wirt from Missouri. I think that her bat is really starting to heat up, especially this past weekend against Kentucky. She was unstoppable. Four home runs, two grand slams. She has one of the most powerful swings in the country. It's so short, so compact, and she is so strong in her legs. Her swing is initiated by her legs, and you can see that on every single swing, she is getting everything she has behind it. She went through a little bit of a home run slump, if we're going to call it that. April 1st was her last home run before her bat just exploded this weekend, but it could not be coming at a better time for the Missouri Tigers. And a little inside info with Kim Wirt. She is hysterical, guys. I got to sit down with her in preseason. <laughs> she wants to be a chiropractor, and her slogan is going to be, I'm going to crack your bat back, and then I'm going to crack you up. Talking about NIL deals, she really did have three bowls of Lucky Charms, and she tweeted at them today, Asking for an NIL deal. We'll see if she gets it. <laughs> what a slogan. Wow. I, I, that one took me for a little bit of a surprise. I didn't expect for you to say that. That's so funny. Um, I don't think that we can talk about home run hitters without talking about Mia Davidson. 87 career home run. She currently sits mm -hmm. at sixth place, sixth place all time, just three behind Stacey Newman, one of the few SEC players that are in the top 12 or 15. And then speaking of SEC, Brie Ellis has hit 18 home runs this season for Auburn. She has hit the most home runs as a freshman. So just wanted to shout out those players. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if this is a thing yet in Como, but they need a word alert out there. Word alert. Let's get the siren going at the ballpark every time she comes up to the plate. The word alert for Kim. Great to see the home run hitters back and doing their thing this week. It was a lot of fun to track. And that's our cleanup spot today on the seven innings podcast still more to come including a chat with the umpires how about a little sister act we've even got a couple of sisters with us who played with their sisters more on sister love and softball when we come back we're excited to have some 
real experts in their field joining us today on Seven Innings Podcast. Joining us first is Vicki Van Cleek, the Secretary Rules Editor for Softball. And we have Steve McCown, our National Director of Officiating. So this is very exciting. So we get a lot of tweets. Amanda, I know you are getting a lot of tweets and questions about rules. So we thought we'd go right to the experts. So first, we're going to come in soft. Like, this is going to be, you know, like the warm-up period where the pitchers get before the game. And I'm joking by that because I'm coming in hot with the strike zone. Um, This will not surprise you. This question is coming from a pitcher, um, Michelle Smith. And she just wants to know about how are we interpreting the strike zone? So, Vicki, I'll start with you. And you give us the the nitty-gritty of the strike zone rules. And then, Steve, you let us know how we are... um, looking at it, how we're evaluating it post-game, and looking at video review of how we can make that strike zone consistent. The strike zone consists of two factors. Um, the top of the ball at the bottom of the batter's sternum, you know, her, her, her chest area, and then the top of the ball at the top of the knee. So that's, that's the framework the basis for the strike zone. And that strike zone can be changing and evolving because everybody's body's different, right? Sizes are different. So the strike zone has to be fluid in that sense. Absolutely. Location of the pitch, you know, location of the batter, size of the batter, um, and then obviously umpire judgment. I think that's where the inconsistency come in comes in is on judgment. We, we can't teach judgment. We, we don't have a budget for training aids. We're not the MLB. We, we don't give our feedback as our umpires going back and rewatching the game. So uh, the, the only way we're going to get really better as a whole is if these colleges or these universities share their technology with us. And if that, if that means going to camps, holding camps and having us come back and get feedback. But right now, Our strike zone is our strike zone. It's your judgment and going back and watching the replay on ESPN to see how accurate you are. I know that we've seen some changes to the pitching rules of what is and isn't illegal. And could you just walk us through that again, like what the changes were? And so everybody out there knows, because this is what people are sending us on social media, still shots, clips, like, oh my gosh, why aren't they calling this, you know? And like, let's let's get the information. One of the biggest changes we've made is to only require the pitcher to have one foot in contact with the pitcher's plate. Now that stride foot can be behind. They can set it as far back as they want. Once they establish that pivot, that stride foot, they can't move it in any direction. So that's the one big change we've made. Obviously, you know, USA softball voted uh, last year, last fall to allow their pitchers to disengage from the pitcher's plate. I presented that information at the NFCA convention. We had two major sessions on on pitching, and it was clear that our membership is not in favor of allowing what they would refer to as leaping. You can call it disengaging. You can call it being in the air, but it would be qualify as a leap. They're not in favor of that rule change because they see that as potentially leading to a replant. You've been on the field. You're you're the director now, but you've been on the field calling illegal pitches and, and been in the weeds of it. So what, what did you need to see as far as a drag foot being there? Like how, how, what, what was it that pushed you over the edge? What did you need to see in order to call it? Right. It, it just has to jump out on you. We have to, sometimes it could be in between innings when we're going out and brushing the rubber and we're not seeing a drag mark. That's a pretty good indication that they're not dragging. 
So there, we don't have any secret signals. We don't have any, you know, we're not signaling our partners. Hey, now's the time to start calling it. There's, there's none of that. We just, we don't go in with prejudice. We just call it when we see it. The only defense, indefensible part that we have that I, in my eyes, is that we have to be consistent. We can't go one game or four games in a row and not get one pitch called on your pitcher. And then all of a sudden the next umpire calls 10 on them. But that's again, we're, it's subject, subjective to each umpire. One person's going to see one something that another one's not going to see. So I want to get into the instant replay. Um, it has been started in some conferences. We're seeing more of it spread around the country, but not everybody's doing it. How could you give us a broad assessment, Vicki, of how we think instant replay is going so far and impacting the game? Obviously, we have conferences that are using it, not a lot, and conferences that aren't. Many conferences are going to add it on for their conference tournament, and even Division Two and Three will use it in their championship or postseason. Um, it, it varies by you know how we do it. Uh, we have umpires, trained video review people sitting in an independent site, um, filtering all their video into there. We have umpires on the field um, reviewing their own plays. Uh, I think it's I think it clears up a lot of controversy in the game. Um, but it obviously still, we're still on a learning stage. We're doing a lot of training and, um, we still have some kinks to work out. Love that we have replay review. I think people were shouting and saying, like, we need this, we need this, but now we're complaining about how long it takes. So I think that process will get quicker. Um, Steve, how do you think the umpires have taken to this? We knew there were going to be issues. I mean, it's, it's, we're going to, there's going to be a learning curve. We're going to make mistakes. Um, baseball's been using it for four or five years and even longer experimental, and they're still having issues. So we didn't go in thinking it was going to be perfect. Um, obviously, our struggle is with the, um, the differences between a centralized location where we have people actually reviewing it off-site and having to bring go into a monitor with three or four different angles and even to the part where somebody's bringing an iPad and queuing it up on the field, which that there, there are issues on that with that. Also, you know, you're making the screen bigger and it's all pixelated and you can't see. So bottom line is if, if, if it's indisputable, we, we have to stay, stick with the call. So there, there absolutely been struggles. We talked about the length of replay, the inconsistencies, and just trying to get some uniformity there. The, the one other thing I wanted to ask you all about was just the length of games right now. It feels like, you know, I know we have talked at convention and our bosses have been very involved in making games go quicker um, and, and keeping in a window. And it feels like the length of games has gotten longer. What are we doing to address the length of games right now? We've had um, very little proposals related to the um, pitch clock. Um, so that issue has not come up yet. Maybe it will on the next rule cycle, which would be in June of 2023. Um, we are having some discussion about pitch comm, the one-way communication between the coach and the bench uh, to be enable them to give the pitching signals quicker. And I think that might expedite our game. Thank you for your time. I feel like we've covered a lot of topics. We'll let you go. Vicki Van Cleek and Steve McCown, we appreciate your time today and thank you for supporting Softball and all that you do. Love that we had that open line of communication and had a chance just to sit down with some real human beings, right? I mean, they're umpires and they play a different role in the sport than what we play as players and now as 
uh, people who are in the media, but they're humans. They make mistakes. I felt like in that conversation, they were just real and pretty honest with us about where the sport is currently, how they can be better, and how we can just continue to move forward together. Well, I thought one of the biggest travesties, though, in that conversation and one of the biggest things that I'll take away is that Steve McCowan talked about how the universities do not share their technology in video. And that would be one of the biggest ways that they could, as umpires, could get feedback, have constructive criticism, and find ways to actually make their game better. So I don't know what needs to happen. I don't know how to fix it, but the fact that he said that, that they're literally asking for help, asking for help from the universities, that to me would seem like an easy fix and the universities aren't stepping up, I just, I think is a shame, Michelle. Yeah, absolutely, Amanda. And you know, when you think about it, they're an integral, important part of our game, right? The better our players get, the better our umpires need to get. And so we just need to give them more reps. We actually need more umpires. If anyone is interested, please figure out a way to, to sign up, to learn. Because let's face it, you go to be an umpire, it's a very difficult and a very fast game. And it takes time to go from being a, an umpire to a good umpire to a great and elite umpire. So we have to give them reps. We have to give them time. We have to help facilitate for them to become their best. So our game is at its best. And let's face it, no matter what, on a close call, 50% of the crowd is going to think they're wrong, right? So that's just the, the, what it comes down to. These are really skilled individuals, human beings, as you mentioned, Amanda. And I just think that we need to give them a little bit more due for all they sacrifice for our game. What do you think, Jen? Michelle, you took the words right out of my mouth because I don't think that that's something people are talking enough about on social media. Everyone is extremely quick to judge, to assume that what we can see at home, slow motion, a ton of replays that an umpire can see in live time. And that's just unrealistic. They can't. They are human beings. They are natural. They make mistakes. Also, I, the rep thing, Michelle, how can we get our umpires more reps? Amanda brought up a great point about universities being able to share technology. To me, my question would be, why isn't that a thing? Why aren't we wanting to get better? We expect that of our athletes. We expect that of our, of our coaches. Why don't we expect that of our umpires? Madison, what are your thoughts? Well, I think when you're talking about those reps, one way to do it is to, for, for everybody to not so much villainize the umpires and make want, people want to be umpires. Mm -hmm. Because I think oftentimes they're the bad guys when it comes to the game, whether they get a call right, get a call wrong, get a call that that the fans don't agree with. I think that at the end of the day, what we're saying is these are human beings. They're going to make mistakes, and that's okay, but that doesn't make it okay for, for everybody else to attack them. So I think we have to want have to have people that want to be umpires so that they can stay in the game for a long time so that they can get those reps so that we can get the best of the best umpires at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's one of the things. And, and you know what? There, there's a segment of every fan base everywhere we go they love the sport. They're passionate about the sport. They love being at the stadium and love being a part of the game. There's also a small segment that wants to argue every single call and yell at the umpires, even though their seat is nowhere near behind home plate and they don't have a clear view of whether the ball was high or low or up or down. Let's give people a break and just relax, enjoy the game, be passionate cheering about our team and not necessarily riding the umpires right from the first pitch to the last. The, the other big thing I think too, and, and something that uh, the umpires talked about, and, and they are, there are ongoing discussions with the rules committee as well as the pace of play. And we've talked about this before. 
but we need to make sure that the uh, pitch clocks are being enforced. We need to make sure that we're trying to teach our players and our pitchers, don't get too far away from that pitching rubber. Don't keep stepping out of the batter's box and adjusting everything on your body between pitches. Let's get in there and go. We had a great umpiring crew this past weekend for that Florida State Clemson series. The the, uh, uh, umpires today talked about consistency. We had a consistent strike zone. There weren't a ton of 3-2 counts. There weren't a ton of walks. There are still a lot of foul balls. I will say that batters are able to time up these pitchers pretty well. So we're still seeing that. But the things that we can continue to do to help with the pace of play and encourage our umpires to find that consistency and help them as best we can to do that, all going to be a big plus for our game that we love so much. All right, our seven innings podcast rolls on, and so does the road to the Women's College World Series. And the sisterhood of softball sometimes includes the folks that we grow up with and we fight with and we hug about and just all kinds of good sister stuff coming up. My why is my little sister. Having a sister, I think, is the coolest thing ever. There's nothing like getting to play with your sibling. As she's gotten older, it's just been so fun to watch her play and really get a lot closer to her. And she's a different player than I am, but she's a good little player, so look out for her. Getting to like grow up together and play the game of softball together and just be the reason why each of us have kind of gotten to where we're going to be and we'll keep going, I think, is just one of like the big reasons that I love softball. I chose Michigan State because my sister was there. Anytime things got hard, like, I always know somebody that genuinely, like, was there for me. I loved every minute getting to play with her. Growing up, I had an older sister who played softball. Uh, she was also a pitcher, and so that's kind of where I got it from. I always saw her pitch, and I was like, I want to do that. I want to be a pitcher. I would always go to pitching lessons with her and be, like, thrown into the fence beside her. It was always, like, my sister would pitch first, and then I'd go pitch. My dad would stand out there for both of us, and he'd catch both of us, and... You know, it was just really cool experience. It's something that we look back on, and it's like the times that we cherished together, you know, like we had some bad times, we would scream at each other, but then there was like the great times where like it'd be so fun. She is by far my biggest fan. She's supportive of everything I do, like good, bad, everything. Like she's 100% there for me at all times. Sashal is amazing, and we have such a tight bond. I mean, we are so close, and like I don't think you could get any closer than us two. She's the best player that I've ever seen, and like she inspires me every single day to just keep pushing and keep working hard. Just watching her play, she's my idol. My older sister, Amira, she went to the University of Washington. She was persistent. She never stopped. She never quit. She's just that one that I can always call when I'm having a bad day, and she's like the older sister that I want to be to my two younger sisters. I absolutely love my sister. I adore her, and I think she's always been my role model and my idol, but I never wanted to tell her that just because she's my big sister. But this past summer, we were just talking about me transferring and she sat me down and just said that she's so proud of me and the woman that I've become and the softball player that I am. I just love her to death and just knowing that she has my back no matter what, no matter where I am, no matter what colors I have on, that just means the world to me. Watching her play in the World Series, hitting that home run, just being so proud that she was my sister and now I feel like the rules are switched and I can just see how proud she is of me the whole time. Getting to see Anna every day, it just puts a smile on my face. We're four years apart, we've never been able to play together and then COVID happened and I got that extra year of eligibility back. She was one of the big reasons that I I did want to come back to spend my last year, her first year here um, with her and 
I don't know if she knows this, it means so much to me that I'm ending my career while she's starting her career. It was the first and only time that we're, we're on the field together, which is awesome. You guys want to make me emotional? Talk about my dad, my daughter, or my sisters. I can't watch that without getting completely teary-eyed. Um, my family was actually one of the very first to have four girls play Division I softball. So I was the oldest. I played at UCLA. The second played at Stanford. The third at UCLA. And the little baby went across the country to the SEC and played at Arkansas. We had a batting cage in our backyard. My dad had a sign made that was called the chapel. Because in the chapel, there were no fights. There were competitions, of course, but that's where you just worked on things. And when I say things, I just don't mean hitting the rise ball or the curveball. That's where you learned how to be a good teammate. And I think being a great sister is the first step of being a really great teammate. Getting the chance to play at UCLA with my sister, Katie, it was her freshman year. She was a center fielder. She had an All-American year. I caught getting to look at her every single pitch, getting to have an outs routine. And it was the same year that we got to play against our other sister, Michelle. So three in the Pac-12 at the same time. But then I'll tell you, this is something that Maddie is learning right now. There's nothing more incredible than getting to watch your sister, me getting to watch my little sister, Arkansas, break so many records there and not just become a great softball player, but develop into a really great and powerful woman. And that's what Maddie is getting to watch Allie do right now. I know that's special for you, Maddie. Guys, I make so many laps around my living room watching my sister play. And without a doubt, I get way more nervous watching her compete than I ever did out there on the softball field. And when I think back to my days growing up in travel ball, there's not a softball memory that does not include my little sister. She grew up at the softball field with me. And now we have seven years age gap in between us. So we never got an opportunity to actually play on the same team together. She keeps bugging me to try to come out of retirement so that we can have one year together on the field. Although I keep trying to remind her that we don't have any more years of eligibility, unfortunately. But she, I am so proud of the woman that she's become. I love watching her compete every single day. I don't care if she goes four for four, 0 for four, it does not matter. It brings me so much joy to be able to go out there and watch her compete. And Amanda, what is your sister memory? <laughs> well, being an only child, I don't really have a true blood sister memory, but I love hearing you and Jen talk about the relationship that you guys have with your true blood related softball sisters. For me, um, I think I go back to some softball sisters without the blood part. Like one of my closest friends is Megan Gibson, who I played with whenever I was nine years old and we ended up playing together. Uh, whenever we were very, very young and then ended up going to A&M together and not just her, but the entire class of 2008 at Texas A&M, we were all just so close. So had that softball sister bond that is a little different than what you guys have, but still always there for each other, super loyal. Um, and I'm proud of them, just like you guys are proud of your sisters. Michelle, what do you have? Well, I started playing softball because my older sister, then she quit softball to become a cheerleader and I can't even do a cartwheel. So I just continued to play softball. <laughs> and then my younger sister, I got her to pitch me batting practice one day and I hit her and then she quit softball and started running track. So there I was by myself. So even <laughs> though I started with my sisters, I only continued on myself. So a lot of my softball sisters are my actual teammates that I had 
playing over in Japan or playing for, for Team USA. And it is the same way when you're with your uh, your softball sisters. It feels the same. That's Lucy Casares and Debbie Schneider, who I spent 16 years in Japan with. And, and also Kristen Rivera, who played at Washington. She caught me my last three years. So your softball sisters, even though they're, as you mentioned, Amanda, they may not be your blood relatives. They are definitely your sisters. And when you go through battles with them, uh, you just become, uh, they just become your family. And so I'm very blessed to have um, some really, really special softball sisters. So, so no mention from anybody about bragging rights or anything. I got to believe, Maddie, when your sister ever comes over to your house, you have your home run from the World Series on an endless loop. No, I mean, is there no bragging rights here with sisters? <laughs> There is definitely bragging rights, and it's so funny that you bring that home run up because we actually compared my home run trot around the bases to her walk-off home run against Georgia earlier this year, and it's like deja vu watching us run around the bases with our arms up in the air. Oh, oh, that's good. What about you, Shro? I, there must be some great stories from when Alforia were on the road and going to softball games. Oh, Oh, definitely, Beth. And I think the funny thing is two of us were lefties, two of us were righties. So it's funny because, like, obviously most of them would beat me in a race. And I have to tell you, my sister at Stanford actually stole a base off of me. And that photo is up in my dad's office. Like, he put it up in his office of Michelle sliding into second base. I'm like, are you kidding me? I just had one more th quick thing to add, and Michelle, your your comment reminded me of it. I actually wanted to be a cheerleader like my older sister because I looked up to her when I was growing up. Thankfully, I did not become a cheerleader because I would not have been nearly as good at, uh, at cheerleading as I was at softball, but those sisters, we always look up to them. I think it's, it's something that we'll forever cherish, and softball sisters, blood sisters, it does not matter. We're all one family. Yes. Yes, we are. And, and I think the one thing that I took from this conversation and from the wonderful package that our, our team put together for us is to cherish the good times with one another. And of course, even more poignant this week with the, the loss of one of our own from the softball sisterhood, our thoughts and prayers certainly going out to the family of Lauren Burnett and the entire JMU athletic family uh, for uh, just another tragic loss this week. Uh, thinking about our sisters this week. And we welcome you back to the Seven Innings Podcast. Beth Bowens, Michelle Smith, Amanda Scarborough, Maddie Shipman, Jen Schroeder. And it's time to shag some stats. And I'm going to lead us off, and I'm going to talk about what a terrific week it was for the Shockers of Wichita State and Addison Barnard, who was phenomenal. Six home runs, 15 runs batted in. I think it was three run rule wins for the Shockers over Memphis. They scored 43 runs. Smitty? Well, Beth, my shagging stat is when you look at the SEC and potentially who could win or sweep the awards this year of player of the year, pitcher of the year, and coach of the year, could it be Arkansas? And has it been done before? Oh, yes, it has been done before. LSU in 02, Georgia in 05, Tennessee in 07, and then Alabama in 2010. It's been 12 years, though, since it's been done. Maddie, what do you got? My shagging stat is going to a gap-to-gap -gap hitter after my own heart. Murray State's Logan Brondmeyer is currently leading the country in doubles with 22. She is doing phenomenal. And, hey, she can, she can hit the long ball, too. She's got eight home runs. But, Amanda, what's your shagging stat? Well, I think Jen's actually I'm going to jump, Amanda. So Jen, what's yours? <laughs> 
I was just gonna cut you off anyway, because Amanda, I'm sticking on this sister theme, and I know that you don't have blood sisters, but I'm pretty much like your sister, so I'm just gonna jump over you like I would my own blood. There are only four <laughs> people on UCLA's all-time 300 hit club, and two of them are sisters, Kylie and Brie Perez, and they're in some really good company right there. Amanda, what do you got? Yeah, they are. I don't know if I appreciate you just walking all over me, but that's okay. We can talk about that later, sis. Okay, my shagging stat is Boston University has the longest win streak in the country at 23 games. Ashley Waters doing a nice job with that program, and it's also a Patriot League record. Okay, so you guys, let's move on to the nine spot now and move to the mailbag. First question that we have is from Josh Hall. If you could change one rule in NCAA softball, what would you change, Maddie? I would definitely change the obstruction rule. And I think I think of this from a shortstop perspective, going over to cover the steal. I feel like it's really hard when you're coming across the bag to stay out of the baseline completely before you have the ball. So that's definitely the one that I would look to change. Michelle, do you have any rules that you would change? Oh, absolutely. Maddie, I would like two off the top. I would immediately add the safety bag at first base. So put in the orange bag and I might get rid of those pitching lanes. I just, you know, they clutter up the circle in my opinion. So <laughs> who else? Who would change the rules? Waste of chalk. Waste of chalk. <laughs> All right, I feel like we could probably have an entire episode on rule changes, but we'll move on to Juliana Dusso's question. And she says, as a Pac-12-er, I am so worried about our conference. The ACC and SEC are quickly eclipsing us, and it seems a lack of national coverage because of their lack of TV deals is hurting the recruiting. Am I overreacting? What will it take for us to get back on top, Jen? Uh, Juliana, you are not overreacting. And in my opinion, as a also Pac-12-er, they have already eclipsed the Pac-12. I think TV deals are a huge reason. I also think facilities, the Pac-12 is just behind. So what does the Pac-12 need to do? It needs to spend some money, Amanda. Hmm, wonder if that will happen in the future, maybe. Agreed. Okay, we have one more question. We're getting to three mailbag questions today. This is exciting. This is from Will Cover. And this is an interesting one because we have extra days at the World Series. So does lengthening the number of days at the World Series help teams pitch their number one pitcher more times? What do we think about this, Michelle? I absolutely agree. I think it does. I think a team like Washington, if they get there, they can use Gabby Plane in every day game. So I actually do think that it will be advantageous for teams that rely on one arm. I mean, it's always going to help to have a staff, though. What do you guys think? Yeah, I, I think if I got my math right here, uh, you, you could pitch your ace Thursday, Friday, off Saturday, pitch Sunday, off Monday, uh, uh, pitch Monday, off Tuesday, and then pitch in the Champ Series. So there you have it. I, well, like I know this is going to help back. the pitchers, stuff, but do we everybody. think that it's going to hey. help the catchers too? We've got a catcher on here. Jen, do you think that that extra day would help the catchers back there behind the plate along with the pitchers? I mean, that's helping out everybody. Does, does anyone actually care how the catcher feels? They're just expected to be back there all the time, right? <laughs> <laughs> this was a sneaky, sneaky good one, and I can't believe I missed it the first time through. But the fact that someone has 22 doubles, are you kidding me? That's got to be the name of this week's podcast. 22 doubles. <laughs> a lot of deuces running wild. Thanks so much for being with us. Thursday night throwdown, Oklahoma State 
Florida State on the road to the Women's College World Series.